Hey listeners, this is Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia. After more than a decade of venture building, bootstrapping, scaling, and now investing in Southeast Asia, I sit down with founders, investors, and entrepreneurs who can share their hard-earned lessons and stories for the benefit of the Asia ecosystem and beyond. Today, we get a peek behind the curtains. A lot of people I come across are curious and want to know what early rocket internet days were like. Many others espouse the typical narrative often found in the media about rocket internet. The one thing that everyone cannot deny is the impact and legacy that Rocket Internet has left on the broader ecosystem for tech and entrepreneurship. Today, we get a chance to hear directly from Stephen Chung, who was with Rocket Internet from late 2010 to early 2013. His run with Rocket Internet was pretty epic. He was able to launch, scale, build, and run five or six business ventures from Private Lounge, which was similar to Guilt.com, the Flash Sale luxury website, Wimdu, the infamous Airbnb competitor, Glossy Box, whose comparable was Birchbox, Zalora, Southeast Asia's largest fashion e-commerce company, and regionally launching Food Panda, whose legacy is huge with delivery here today. In the second half, we get to learn about Steven's experience in joining an early stage ad tech company and growing it to its acquisition in 2019, along with his current role as Chief Revenue Officer for a publicly listed media company, Entrevision, which also has tech ambitions too. These days, I would argue having a general understanding of ad tech is important for consumer-facing tech startups. In many parts of the world, we still rely on acquiring and growing similar user bases. This episode assumes some basic knowledge of ad tech. If you need to pause and do some research into common terms, please do so if you're interested. If not, feel free to skip around if your podcast player supports chapters. If you're ready to learn, let's dive in and listen. Stephen Chung, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Doing well, Alex. Thank you. Uh, enjoying the uh, the nice August lull. You know, most people are on vacation, I think, around the world. So it's a good time to uh, kind of hunker down and, and start doing some things that you weren't able to do, you know. I guess that's more for the, the Western perspective, this kind of summer, everyone takes off and things slow down, right? Um, so we have with us uh, Stephen Chung, who is currently the CRO, Chief Revenue Officer. Yep. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Of, uh, of Entrevision, which is a media company who has television networks and state and radio stations that primarily cater to Spanish speaking Hispanic communities from Latin America, Mexico, and Spain, right? Yeah, yeah. And we uh, have a growing digital division, international digital division that's uh, that has more of a global footprint. So I'm currently sitting in Korea. Um, we do have, uh, you know, presence in Russia, in Latam, in all around Europe, North America, et cetera. So the the international division is much more, it's more global. It doesn't focus necessarily on the mm, Hispanic okay. uh, markets. Um, but yes, essentially, that's that's where I'm at. Cool. And so I'm pretty excited today because, Stephen, I don't know if you know, but you're a pretty important person for my career. You know, I guess I wouldn't be here technically uh, if, uh, you know, I haven't met you. Back in 2011, I believe. I think it was November, around November 2011, when you were deep in rocket internet. And I guess that's the, the first topic we're going to talk about, um, early rocket internet. Uh, so I don't know, do you, do you still remember those early days? I do. And I do remember uh, when we first came across each other. And and I mean, it's it's kind of a haze, you know, I think, especially back then. <laughs> and, you know, it's been 10 years. It's in, 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 in our in our business in our um, industry it's like uh, you know like dog years right so it's like 70 years probably yeah. that have passed since then. but i do remember and i look back very fondly of those times 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it's more of a clear memory because that's when everything got kicked off for me. Uh, I think first first was Daniel who introduced, and then well, with your approval and Daniel's approval, then you passed me on to to meet the bigger guys in Rocket, and then of course got the offer, and then it kind of worked out. Um, how, how were you introduced into Rocket Internet back in 2011? Yeah, that was it. Was super random. It was um, it was actually late 2010 when uh, Groupon was doing their massive international expansion. So you know they uh, they basically hired you know Ali uh, Ali Samwar's team to do their global expansion. Um, I was sitting in Korea at the time, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and. Uh, you know, just like everything, um, it was it was all networking, and I came across um, some good friends who were like, "Hey, you know, we we just got back from Shanghai. You know, there's a there's a buddy that's doing some really cool stuff there. They're looking to expand and and build a network." So I got in touch with him. He put me in touch with the guys in Korea, um, who were one of the very few, I would say, um, rocket companies uh, offices. And I can tell you a little bit more about that later. Um, and they were looking, you know hungry for talent, hungry for people to, to start and uh, yeah. all that timing. Yeah. Yeah. So you were one of the really, really OG ground zero guys for global expansion of Rocket because I think it all starts from Groupon probably. I mean, of course, before that was Zolando, but those are more driven by the brothers directly. Um, and so I, I did recently do a podcast with a Groupon China, one of my friends who, who was in Groupon China. And that means you were on the Korea side. And I don't know, maybe if you know the story better, I, I heard a story from Groupon Korea that there was a founder who sold the business to the Samuel brothers on like two occasions or something, right? They built the same model. Is, do, do you have any idea of the story or is this true or not? I don't know about if it was two uh, ventures, but the guys that, um, that I ended up working with, they did, you know, essentially sell one of their businesses to, uh, to, to group yeah. on. Um, I don't know if it was two, but uh, yeah, you know, I, I think the beauty of what Ollie and Oliver Samuel and, uh, the rocket team did was essentially build um, a parallel rocket office in, you know, the group on uh, markets where they really want mm -hmm. to grow. So this is yeah. like Korea, this is like Brazil, uh, you know, obviously um, in Germany. Um, I forgot where the other rocket offices were uh, globally. There were a few more in, in Europe, obviously there was one in China. Um, and we, you know, we're able to leverage, all the talent that was flowing through Groupon, all of the learnings from the hundreds of millions of dollars in paid marketing, yeah. operational logistics, and basically just transfer that over with Rocket with this parallel office yeah. um, building. And that was, it was genius. And uh, I think, um, you know, we learned so much uh, from them and, you know, it was the, it, it was really, really sort of an accelerating move, I would say. Do you, do you think that Insight was on purpose? Did they know they were going to go beyond Groupon? Uh, because at the time, uh, Groupon essentially acquired the whole thing and they were they were working for Groupon officially in Groupon titles. Uh, so you're telling me at the same time they were on purpose running parallel offices or was this always kind of understood to be the case and yeah. like a purposeful strategy? Yeah, this was, uh, this was always on purpose. Um, and I can tell you, you know, we, we, we started with... With Groupon, not we. The the team started right before I joined um, a flash sale site as well, with uh, uh, along with Groupon, and that was private you know, lounge. Exactly, private lounge, and that was um, that was built sort of in parallel, and they they built up a, a business, a team, everything very quickly. Um, 
And I think the same happened across a few of the other regions where they did have a dedicated yeah. market office. Uh, so it was very much purpose-driven and it was very much uh, on purpose, yes. Even back then, early days uh, for what we know as the early global rocket, they had a very clear insight and vision and were already executing on it. And it just seemed that Groupon was along that that kind of vein. Um, for, in terms of early organization culture, though, uh, you know, from when you joined in late 2010 to when you left in 2013, uh, how did that kind of culture change? Uh, was there a big change or was it, do you think it was pretty much the same for your experience? I mean, I think it changed quite a bit. Um, you know, with, with Rocket Internet before there were any ventures on the ground and I wouldn't call Groupon a, a rocket venture, but, you know, you started out with, like you mentioned, Zalando, there's some Groupon, um, you know, businesses, but, you know, in the early days, it was always, you know, the rocket founders, the rocket team, which, you know, was very, very slim. It was kind of a, you know, a tight group of, uh, of people around the world. Um, and their jobs were basically to go out um, and to build these dedicated ventures, move on after three months, after finding the founders, yeah. co-founders, building up the initial business, move on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, um, you know, once some of these ventures really started taking off and, you know, raising massive rounds. And, and, and of course, you know, the ventures mattered much more, I think, uh, than rocket in the mm. end for, you know, the actual, you know, the purpose of company building and, um, yeah. of really, uh, you know, getting things off the ground. So for example, with, you know, you know, the Zalora, the Lazada, these types of uh, plays in the end, um, became much more important than I think rocket itself. Do you, do you know if they had the playbook nailed down to a T back then, or was it still kind of a work in process where they just kind of, you know, put the pedal to the metal, accelerate extremely fast and kind of, you know, it all hinged around the brothers and Ollie, uh, then they kind of iterate on the fly or, you know, these kind of centralized structures and marketing and product. Was that just also something they just knew early on too during your time? During my time, um, I think they had the blueprint sketched out. They understood okay. like the, the path, um, but like everything that we did in general, uh, things <laughs> yeah, kind yeah, of, of went wayward or, um, you know, a, a better path was found, but um, it's, it was a combination of both, but there was definitely some, some very uh, much, um, you know, uh, dedicated uh, paths that they wanted to to take and, and follow it very, very, uh, you know, strictly yeah. out to. I mean, hi hindsight 2020, not if you've worked in other contexts, public company now, mm -hmm. uh, a company that was acquired even, uh, do, you, do you think this was the right strategy or do you think there was just too much waste? They could have done it in a better way or how do you think of it, you know, in hindsight? I, in hindsight, after, you know, after seeing the ecosystem develop, after seeing a little bit more myself with um, with other startups, my guess was this was definitely probably the fastest way to get it done, which was mm. probably the goal. Um, you know, yeah. to to raise quickly, to get into a market where, you know, I'm speaking strictly for you know the Asia markets. You know, I don't know so much about you know the the Western European or the um, the Americas, but at least for Asia, the goal was always to go fast, raise money quickly, um, get penetration. Um, and I think that was probably the right way to go. Obviously there was, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, we all made mistakes and, uh, that's part of the, the process. Obviously I don't think yeah. there was a better way to do it. If you, you took more of a measured approach or tried to do things a little bit differently, things probably wouldn't have, have worked out the way they did. Mm. Yeah. 
And, you know, the side effect was just a crazy, awesome ecosystem that flourished, um, you know, in its aftermath, right? Across the globe, right? Yeah. Um, I was talking to my friend who's also been working in Asia for many years and now moved back to America to build companies. And uh, he's of the position that in these days, and given how the macro environment is for raising money and how much money is in the ecosystem, that kind of notion still applies. You just need to raise more money and having a capital mo- to move fast still holds true. Do you, do you kind of agree to that? I mean, probably. I think it, you know, if you're doing something really capital intensive, yes, absolutely. Um, I think that matters. I think it also matters in terms of user acquisition um, because, you know, if you're doing anything that requires, um, you know, gaining, you know, an audience really quickly, you're going to be spending a shitload of money on Facebook and on Google to acquire, to download apps or to do whatever you need to do. And that is um, a huge chunk of any startups, um, you know, uh, you know, burn, especially if they're trying to scale really, really, really quickly. Um, I think if you have, um, a different, uh, you know, approach a, a launch that's it's a little bit different. I don't think you need to burn that much money, but I would say for the most part, what you see is yeah. just <laughs> insane amount of yeah. money that needs yeah. to be there. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, so you think there's too much money for certain ideas, but they're using it essentially as a way to, to get ahead. Um, I wouldn't say I think there's too much money. I just think that that is just a necessary part of it now is that okay. you just, yeah. You need to do your acquisition. It's expensive and you can't do what you're doing before, especially in mobile. Um, call it in 2013 and 14. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's so different now that you need to really spend out of pocket um, a, a very large sum in order to get what you need. Well, essentially what people are doing is buying a market to, and I mean, it's not, not even necessarily looking at a natural product market for where it solves a problem. People lower the cost of customer acquisition costs. People just outright buying mar- uh, users these days. Right? And I think this is a really good question for you, given Rocket Experience, where you spend a lot of money early days. But back then, I think you can make a better argument because no one was spending as much as Rocket was. And acquiring users, in theory, should have been cheaper. Um, Though, of course, early early on the curve, the CACs were always really high for all the ventures we did. Uh, but, you know, as the space got more competitive and you got ch- giant unicorns who are spending massive amounts of money in, on marketing. And also, you probably saw this from the AppLift side when, you know, you're doing uh, mobile marketing. Mm-hmm. Just like, like, you, like, like you're alluding to, the CACs are too expensive and people are just buying it. Um, do you think that this is still a viable strategy to just spend money on user costs or there has to be more innovative way to kind of get customers because it just seems crazy at this point in time, especially like what we were doing. I think for our strategy and people never really followed all these advice to the T it's like, you know, never discount the same user twice, but we, <laughs> these days everything is just about throwing a voucher and that the whole behavior of user consumption is driven about where's my next discount. So I don't know. How do you think about that? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, going back to a, a little bit, you know, the first part of your question here, you know, when we were growing e-commerce and, you know, let's specifically talk about Vietnam. Um, yeah. I mean, we were really the first ones to do any kind of e-commerce to, to build a shop um, for uh, for people to shop online. There's a shopping cart, you know, and uh, yeah. credit card penetration back then was less than 1% probably. 
Uh, I remember we had people coming to the office to, to try to, to, to buy stuff too. <laughs> um, yeah. I do think that, you know, it was expensive to acquire those relatively, but also you're, you're building a market, you're building that and, and really educating the, you know, you know, consumers how to, how to actually use it. So yeah. it was, it was definitely expensive. Um, I think probably having seen a lot of the larger um, players, especially in Asia, when I went over to Applift and how they spent, um, I do think it became sort of a, a race to to amass as much as you could. You know, at that point, there was not, I mean, you had a lot of different companies that weren't able to really differentiate, at least from what I could see on my side, yeah. having been someone that, that helped these companies. Uh, to build their audiences and, and, and do user acquisition. Um, and a lot of it came down to, like you said, um, you know, the, the voucher uh, play or, um, you know, doing something else that, uh, that may have, you know, cost a significant amount of money. Do I think it's necessary still? Probably not. Actually, I don't know. That's a very good question. I haven't actually thought about <laughs> it in a long time. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think if you're doing something like games, I think it's very different. I think at that point it's That's performance driven. Yeah, exactly. It's performance driven. Um, and if you have a really good product and the content is there, then I don't think it's as difficult. I think if you're doing something as capital intensive as, as any kind of um, on-demand delivery or e-commerce these days or, or food, et cetera, I think it's still necessary probably. And I think probably even more so. Okay. Yeah. So it means these companies need to be well capitalized and, if you have a very weak you know, economic position, if you need to play this game, it's just going to be diminishing. You're going to be in big trouble, essentially. You're building something that's in a house of cards. Would you agree? I don't know about house of cards, but you do need a lot more capital. I, I recently saw something online where they compared um, you know, how much it took, how, how much time it took for different delivery companies to raise their first billion or so. And, you know, going back to the days of like uh you know, like DoorDash and Postmates to now with like Gorillas and, you know, these other, you yeah. know, newer on delivery, you know, like fast um, on-demand delivery services. And it's, you know, the window has shrunk significantly. Um, and I think that's just yeah. a, a matter of how crowded the space is and you have players that are able to do the whole spectrum. Um, and so it probably takes a lot more. It's a lot faster. House of Cards, I yeah. don't know. I mean, indirectly, we're talking about then it's just different various forms of price war, right? It's yeah, everyone's bundling to the same like platforms, and then we're fighting for user um, user base. Uh, essentially, what happens is consolidation is the next phase, right? And I guess that means food further consolidates, or I, I I don't know. I think maybe food even further could unbundle from these platforms because you see all these kind of. Restaurants who are tired of giving too much margin and the access to technology is becoming easier where you have players who support the infrastructure for them to kind of have their own platforms take less margin. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's not decided. <laughs> yeah, definitely not decided. And, um, you know, at some point I thought it, it was going to consolidate further in some markets that I'm, you know, understand just a little bit, but then, you know, you have, then out of nowhere, just these new players that come out and really, yeah, you know, right. get the attention of, uh, of the market and, and really start to make sure it's so, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's such a wild market. It's, uh, yeah. things can change so fast. Yeah. I think for fragmented markets, that point really stands where some 
something new can come out of nowhere, but it's always this type of flavor of land and expand, raise a huge amount of capital, like what we talked about, burn money on buying up expensive customers, which is kind of crazy this day and age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you don't know if that where that goes. So we're, I think we're at that point where we don't know. Where it's different in China, though, that if you are able to outcompete by burning more money, raising more money in China, I think the market is big enough to be sustained and profitable. But I think it's harder in fragmented con- con- you know, countries where you try to have one brand across many countries, but that just mm. may not hold up in individual markets. So, True. but yeah, I think still still early still early days. I think. Um, so I kind of want to go back a little bit to again back to your earlier days, um, mm-hmm. maybe more from a personal side. You know, how did you develop your role from just launching, country, you know, countries and companies to, you know, eventually you, you became a launcher for uh, Private Lounge, Wimdu, Glossy Box, which was probably a pure launching role. Then you st- stayed longer in Zalora. Then eventually you landed more in this kind of regional role in Food Panda. Um, how were you able to kind of transition roles over time in an organization like Rocket? Was it a lot of, a lot of politicking? Did you have to be plugged into someone directly to Berlin or how did that work? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think, you know, the the first ventures that I worked on, I was lucky enough to work with a great team here in Korea. Um, and they really took me across the portfolio. And again, so Rocket Korea was one of the only, it was probably one of the only actual Rocket offices, you know, in Asia. Yeah. And, and that allowed us to work on building several different startups and then also be the regional, you know, builder that launched into other markets. Mm. So, um, you know, initially when I started, I, you know, did everything. It was, you know, I did a little bit of everything for private lounge, did worked on their CRM for a little bit, some of their operations. And then they switched me over when they built glossy box globally, I think it's out of Germany, out of uh, Brazil, out of uh, Korea, China, and, I think Japan as well at that point. Um, and again, you know, I, I kind of got shifted over there. So I was kind of a, you know, uh, Swiss army knife at that point where they moved me to different measures yeah. to help get things started. Um, which I, I know, you know, as well. Um, and then when they wanted to do Southeast Asia eventually, and I think mid 2011, um, you know, Ali asked the guys in Korea to, you know, figure out who to send down there. And I think mm-hmm. the, the folks in China were also doing this as well. The, the global rocket folks yeah. are sitting in China. Um, and so I got a call on a Friday night and I took a flight the next morning uh, <laughs> to Hong Kong to, you know, help with rocket. Exactly, um, to build the, um, you know, help build the, the, the Wimdu business there. And um, did the same thing there, helped there, um, you know, regionally with some of their sales and operations. And then when Zalora and Lazada came along, or Zalora, I should say, before Lazada came along, um, they needed, you know, somebody that had a, maybe a little bit more experience with the launching and the, the protocols that we mm-hmm. that we had in okay. place. Um, so was happy to do that. And uh um, I think that was the start of sort of the the longer stay. I mean, Zalora at that time was just a massive project, um, and it was the biggest project. Yeah. It required the most people, the most development, the most. It was the most operationally complex, and so it's something I wanted to stay on as well, uh, which is why I stayed for okay. quite a long time. Yeah. Okay. So essentially, there was a lot of smaller projects that Rocket wanted to try out. Um, how did these kind of launches come about? Then all these small things before this giant. Zalora. And I think Zalora was probably an effect of how well Zalando did, right? I remember it was something like in 18 months to hit it like a billion in revenue, which was crazy for, for Europe. Like even Amazon hadn't cracked it at the time. Um, so what about the smaller stuff? How did those come about before Zalora? The same playbook that I think, um, 
you know, a lot of the, uh, the rocket early ventures, um, got, I would say unfairly, um, you know, criticized <laughs> for, which was, you know, you have, uh, a lot of people from around the world kind of, um, thinking of ideas to, um, to build and you know you you take an idea and you send it over to ollie and he thinks about it if he thinks it's interesting you know he kind of um you know has uh, other people take a look at it and evaluate whether or not it's interesting yeah. and if it seems good you just go and it's you know because you have all these yeah. um rocket offs around the world it's very 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 easy to get it launched very quickly and so i remember there was um we did something called drop gifts which was also around um like couponing, but for, I forgot exactly the affiliate model um, that was started literally in like 45 days, you know, from start to finish. Uh, yeah. Same thing with glossy box with birch box. Um, and so I think at that point there were smaller plays that, um, that you could get off relatively quickly. Um, and then of course the e-commerce plays were the, you know, the real prices in the end that took a lot more, yeah. uh, you know, a lot more to get started off the ground. It's, it's so fascinating because back then it felt that someone like Oliver Samuel was so accessible, uh, just sending an email and then probably the next day you probably could go to a new country and start a business. It seems kind of unheard of today. And I mean, I, th I think he probably still is very accessible from an investment side. If you're not wasting his time, I mean, his email is probably well known. You could probably just get anything. It's probably, you know, having that open access, uh, you know, ability just to execute fast and just take the risk, which kind of defined early rocket uh, before they kind of went into these kind of deeper verticals, like you said. Um, but internet wasn't so ubiquitous as it is today back then. It's very hard to describe what nascent internet was like and building in it um, before the world, you know. Now now we could press a button and the cars magically appear. Food goes up to your doorstep, right? What was it like building in those early days for you? What, what do you remember the most? So the, you know, the early days with, um, you know, the the you know, the portfolio companies that, that both you and I know, I think the hardest, honestly, was, um, I would say, you know, there was just really not that much infra there. And it was, oh, man, I mean, just finding the talent, you know, uh, yeah. to put everything together. I mean, if you remember what we did in Southeast Asia, we really recruited from all around the world to get the yeah. best people to to build quickly. And, and you know, we could have done it with the local talent there's tremendous amount of talent but to do it that fast i mean we brought in people from from all over europe all over the u.s all over asia um and that was uh that was that was a really interesting time and i think you know having come from maybe markets that were slightly ahead in terms of development of these internet businesses um you brought a a different approach and, and sort of understood maybe a little bit more what that, that cookbook looked like. Um, and it was, it was just so different. <laughs> and I remember talking yeah. to somebody that we were trying to recruit from one of these big, you know, retailing brands. And he's like, I, he's like, this, this doesn't make any sense. You know, who would ever buy online? I was like, I'm like, you know, excuse me, <laughs> you know, around the world, this, this happens a lot. And, um, you yeah. know, I, I know while every market is different, there's a very high likelihood that it can happen here. And yeah. so I think that's just, that was one of the things that, that, that was really interesting and that I really enjoyed being a part of and watching, you know, eventually from the sidelines after I left um, evolve. Essentially, you planted the seed and it grew to a massive tree, I guess you could say, right? Um, very, very rewarding. And you're right. I mean, early, I think, you know, even today, though, I, I, I almost like feel like I'm gone full circle 
where it almost feels like I still need too much money. I still need to, like, if I want to build something, I will need to recruit from abroad to move faster to a sense, because mm-hmm. especially from like tech talent, mm-hmm. uh, locally, business-wise, now the ecosystem is more mature. You could take bets on local guys who've kind mm-hmm. of been through a few different ventures, but it's still, uh, it almost feels like it's, we're still in a place where there's scarcity and talent and you still need to move fast. And um, it, it's a lot of, the, a lot of some fundamentals have been changed, I guess. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't, mean, I don't know if you agree. Um, from what I understand, yes. Uh, although I haven't been so active in in many markets, I've been more active in Northeast Asia recently, but uh, across um, all of Asia, I I have heard also from friends that are building that they same they you know they share the same thoughts that you you have right here. And I guess I guess one of the more infamous uh, business ventures you built was Wimdu, right? It, there was a very contentious story of Airbnb. Um, a lot of Western media. You painted Wimdu in a very dodgy kind of way. Was it as bad as they were saying, or what was the Wimdu story from your side? Yeah, you know, so uh, for Wimdu, um, again, this was a you know a, a very fast, 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 fastly built um, venture. So the HQ was in Berlin, um, and then two guys, two of my friends that I worked with um, at uh, at Private Lounge, essentially led the Asia buildup. Um, and I essentially helped them, you know, you know, you know, get it off the ground in Southeast Asia. I would say, you know, what you read and what you read in the in the press was, um, you know, was exaggerated quite a bit. But of course, like any very highly competitive, um, you know, uh, you know, competition, there are, you know, events and business practices that that others may frown upon. But I, <laughs> I think that in the end, it's, you know, you you do what you need to do to build a business. And, um, you know, one example that, you know, I remember there was an article in TechCrunch uh, that circulated, you know, the, the scammers are, are, uh, you know, invading your Airbnbs and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I can tell you what we did, you know, what I did personally, you know, I would, for example, when I was in Hong Kong, I stayed at a different Airbnb every night for like at least two months, two, three months, something like this. Right. So every night you go to a different place, you stay there um, and then you, you pitch the host. I mean, this is a very, you know, this is what most salespeople do. You pitch them and say, look, yeah. I've got it. You know, I'm working for a, a competitive, um, you know, competitive product. It's, it's very similar. Why, why put all your eggs in one basket on Airbnb? You can be with, with Wimdu or whatever else it was um, and, and uh, you know, spread that risk a little bit. Um, and we are also building something really interesting. We're focused on international expansion. Airbnb at that point really wasn't focused on, especially Asia. Um, we've got dedicated people here to do customer service. We're really localized. We'll give you that, you know, care and attention. And so it made sense. Um, now where it got a little bit, I think, um, you know, uh, bad press, uh, I would say is that, you know, you're you're really in somebody's home, you know. It's not like they're they're the business, yeah. you know, front, you know, retail service that you go and you pitch a coffee shop basically to to sign up the food panda instead of X Y Z. And I get that, and and I understand that that's um, that's very personal. It's it's different, but for me, I had uh, I had no problem doing that. I mean, it's, it's they're yeah. trying to you know um, make a business out of their like apartment or their room, and yeah. you know. So you already put yourself out there and I think that's fair game. So, you know, some of the tactics also maybe rubbed a little, you know, people the wrong way. You built a lot of different profiles. Um, 
you know, multiple profiles for one person so they can go out and hit up three, four, five yeah. Airbnbs at one time. Um, and, mm. you know, you know, you have a situation where you mix up profiles of people who are, you know, ethnically very, you know, on opposite <laughs> ends of the, the spectrum and you have okay. one other guy yeah. show up, you know, you're going to be concerned, you know, that this guy, wait, yeah, yeah, Alex, course. but you know, yeah. you're, you're you know, <laughs> you, you look Asian to me. You don't, you don't look like yeah, uh, yeah, you're yeah. from, uh, you know, from Western Europe, for example. Um, and that obviously is, um, you know, uh, that, that didn't bode too well or that didn't rub people the right way. And, uh, I get that, but in the end competition, competition, and, uh, we were, I think making a lot of, a lot of headway in what we did, especially in Asia. I mean, we did, we had, we signed up so many hosts. We had a lot of, um, you know, travelers yeah. coming in and out. Um, but in the end for this business model at that point in time, so early on, it really was about the community. I think it really was about building that oh, kind of product experience, um, that most likely would have, you know, led to maybe more success. I don't know. But I, you know, thinking back on it at that particular point in time, I mean, Airbnb and this whole, you know, it's a very different business model now, but back then it was really community driven and people driven. And uh, I think that was probably a differentiating factor and you can't build that in, in 45, 60 days. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a few things to point out there. I think the competition piece, I think Americans did what they do best. They had a better PR machine, right? I mean, like, if you really think about what's happening today, what, what you described is probably exactly what all these hotel booking sites are doing, right? Mm-hmm. They, they have the same business model of Airbnb, but they're probably doing the same profile creation. They're probably, you're just being a door-to-door salesman at the end of the day, right? You're trying to take market share. So it's no different. And when, when I was doing ride share, I could like grab is such a great PR story now, but man, they were cut through. Uber was just, just as bad. The stuff that they did, I mean, everyone was doing it, you know, just yeah, creating fake profile accounts, trying to tank your fulfillment and, you know, just, just trying to like, just message. It was just very, very nasty stuff, but people tend to forget when, you know, everything comes together. There's a nice story, a lot of money at stake, right? No, no one wants to hear about that. Uh, so, I mean, I, you know, the point about, I think competition was right. I think whoever, wins tells history and whoever's better at telling the story at the time so i think that you know i think maybe that was one of the weaknesses of rocket you know they, they always kind of had the bad press for that they, they didn't handle the pr too well and they kind of all that uh stuff always leaked out and just you know didn't look good uh but and, and the other part you know i think it's interesting is uh community i think i, I don't know like it, these days maybe not as much but may, maybe you're right I, i'm not too sure how much community factored in i talked mm-hmm. to my friend who launched uh airbnb in southeast asia and he said yeah mm-hmm. the first thing he would do was get all the hosts together which you know it's kind of an interesting kind of step to how that really grows supply more i, I find it a, like a you know it's like step one get hosts together step two question mark step three profit like i don't know what a step two you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, I was like, okay, sure. Uh, so I mean, maybe you're right. You know, you know the model more. Airbnb clearly is successful. So yeah, I guess maybe it was community. Um, but you know, it, it, that that other thing was that was not Rocket's expertise again. It was just trying to execute faster, be very data driven, and if it sticks, it sticks. And that kind of worked very well for probably Zalora, right? And I guess you know when you were doing Zalora before you formed, I guess it was like you told me it was from the Rocket office in Korea. They were trying to see who to send down. Um, do you remember how else it was split up and how that was formed? Because, I mean, this was even before Lazada was, you know, Zalora was supposed to be the biggest one. Uh, you know, what were your early memories of this? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there was a rocket office in China that was managed by the, the global, um, you know, rocket MDs. It was a, a local office in Korea. And Ollie, I remember the first email he sent around about um, the, 
you know, the, the tiger markets, uh, what you call them. And, yeah. um, you know, it was a, essentially a race to hire, you know, the best MDs to get them down there. And this is, um, you know, part of this was reaching out to, you know, some of the smartest people in the region. Um, I was obviously lucky enough to um, have, you know, worked with um, with a co-MD for, you know, my specific area that was just an amazing business partner, really good at what he did. Um, and we found him through sort of the same recruiting process that I got recruited through, which was either through a network or just being headhunted. Um, and we yeah. started out with, you know, different regions having a dedicated rocket MD. So I think this is like Hong Kong and there's a small team, obviously a big team in Singapore. Um, and I believe a small uh, team also out of Indonesia too, in Malaysia. Um, I don't know if mm. maybe Thailand was also about, yeah, actually maybe Thailand. I don't know if Thailand had their own dedicated rocket team, but um you know, these, you know, everybody was sourced from, uh, you know, you know, I'd say mid, you know, late to mid 2011, um, mostly through either Berlin, China, or Korea. Um, and uh, I kind of just landed in a, in, in a market that I knew a little bit about through Wimdu. Uh, but, yeah. you know, going back, probably I would have chosen the, the larger uh, market, you know, probably would have been Indonesia. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, hindsight, I, right? Yeah. In hindsight. Yeah. Yeah. If I had the, if I had that opportunity to, to have chosen, but at that point, you know, it's like, I, I just knew Hong Kong much better having operated there for a little bit of time. And it's yeah. a lot easier for me to get off the ground. And again, when I was, you know, in Hong Kong, again, the, the group on, uh, you know, the, the guys that ran group on there really helped us out quite a bit, you know, with office mm. space, with getting, you know, finding talent and that, that name went a long way. Um, and yeah, so, you know, going back to the question, that was, yeah, that's how it started. And, you know, we really didn't have um, so much of uh, you know, like an orientation, I would call it. I think, you know, the, the folks <laughs> around the global rocket team uh, kind of ran the show, um, you know, from the beginning, they knew the playbook um, and uh, things were a little disjointed, obviously, but uh, in the end, we were able to really get it done. And then uh, you didn't have a choice in Vietnam or did you pick Vietnam or how did that work out? Yeah, so, <laughs> so Vietnam, um, I don't think I really had a choice. I think it was, you know, Vietnam is another <laughs> market we want to go yeah. to, um, yeah. you know. I remember getting a question with, with um, you know, our, our mutual friend, you mentioned him earlier, Daniel, um, you know, somebody was like, uh, someone from the global team management team was like, Hey, you know, choose a, choose the city that you want to be based out of Hanoi or Ho Chi Minh city. And it's like, that would have been such a disaster. I think if we chose Hanoi instead of Ho Chi Minh city, yeah. um, I don't know from, you know, at that point in time, because, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. most of the, you know, obviously the commercial economic, activity, uh, economic yeah. activity, et cetera. But at that point that, that shows you that, you know, it was really just moving so fast that just one wrong yeah. decision and you would have wasted two, three weeks, like figuring out this is the wrong place to be. Let's move somewhere else. So, um, I don't think I was given a choice, but in the end, um, so grateful to have, had that opportunity yeah. to, to, to build out of Vietnam. Um, still think that, uh, you know, a lot of it was just luck and, um, it has proven to be such a dynamic market, even to this day for what yeah. I do with, with my business. I, there's so many really interesting gaming companies coming out of there, mobile app developers mm. that are really just doing amazing things out of there. So it's, it's stuck with me for even, you know, 10, 11 years now. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, was it a huge shock when you first arrived in Vietnam or what was that experience like? Yeah, it was, it was a huge shock and, you know, I've never been to that market before this, the, the country, the cities, um, really had no idea what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> you know, I didn't know yeah. what kind of visa all, all I needed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, 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 but I was super fortunate that I had a really large alumni network that was based out there through, through, um, oh, through nice. college and just went online, um, asked a few of my friends like, Hey, do you guys know anybody in Vietnam? They put me in touch with like some really awesome people. And uh, through that, we met, you know, the guy that helped us build sort of the, the legal structure of Vietnam as well. Yeah. Um, a lot of the early people that we, um, that, that introduced me well, to. A, that was an interesting story. Do, do you remember, uh, you were talking about Lynn, right? Yes, 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 yes. Do, do you remember how, how we ended up meeting Lynn and how we picked him? Yeah, that was so, um, that was, that was such a crazy day. I remember, I remember, you know, this is one of the first times that Ollie, that actually, this is the first time he was visiting Vietnam and probably his first road yeah. show across, um, Southeast Asia, Asia at that time. Right. And uh, right. I don't remember yeah. which market he came from exactly, but we had our Malaysia, Malaysia. Yes. Um, yeah. I was there our, for that one as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, oh, so you were both, it was, it was yeah. so wild. Um, but I think at that point that really cemented how just smart this guy was and how fast he can move and how just it was crazy. two hours yeah, with like, him would just change the direction radically of how you, how you, correct. you approach things and, and, and how things would, uh, would develop. I don't remember who was in the room and I don't even remember how the lawyers appeared, right? There was Lynn lawyer, the cowboy lawyer. It was me, you probably Daniel. And I think even Kevin, Vol Kevin Vaughn was there as well. And then I think Cooper McGuire was sitting on the outside. And then he just went around the room after they talked to the lawyers for like a few minutes. He's like, which one do you want? And then we all had to vote on which one we liked. And I think Don, Don was the one who picked the cowboy lawyer, but everyone else picked Lynn, right? <laughs> Something like that. It was so, so random, which I think ended up being the right choice because Lynn was such a good partner for Rocket. Like he did every rock, subsequent Rocket venture. And when we had to close Easy Taxi, man, it was just so easy compared to the other markets I was managing. Um, so it just shows to show you, yeah, you're right. Like there was so much like Ali could read a person in a few minutes. Like my interview with him was like 15 minutes, but he like read my soul and I, I was so green. I didn't know anything, but he just gave me a chance. It kind of just worked out. Like, you know, it was, I wasn't supposed to be co-founder because I clearly had no clue what I was talking about. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's such a, such an interesting uh, experience. Uh, very surreal when I was like what early twenties and then just to see how business was done in a foreign market when there was no, nothing like this was around, you know, and it ended up working out, I guess. Right. Yeah, yeah, it definitely ended up working out. And it, um, it also goes to show you that someone with experience um, that knows how to structure things that knows, you know, what, what you need to get done, um, even from that one meeting where you you choose someone that will eventually be your local partner, especially the regulatory hurdles yeah. that you have in a market like Vietnam, you need someone who's not gonna go over, but you know, is gonna be a really good partner. Um, and help you not just you know, do the minimum, but help you actually grow fast enough um, to keep up with everything yeah. that else is happening. And, you know, one bad decision there could have been catastrophic. And, um, you know, I think that was also the first introduction yeah. that, you know, someone like Cooper had to, to the business where he was coming in to, you know, to meet the team and understand, uh, you know, if this is something you want to do. And I think he was sold after, you know, uh, you know, two hour meeting. Well, the He's next day he became, <laughs> yeah. He became the CFO like the next day or something, right? Exactly. It was so wild. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I do remember that meeting. And I remember, uh, you know, 
at that point, it was um, just really having to think on your feet really quickly. And uh, that touched your metal. It tells you, if, yeah. you know, can't be a lightweight in those situations. Yeah. You really need to move fast. I, I mean, the, the, the counter story to that was like most of the time, Ali would be correct in picking people and understanding them. Once in a while, he would get it wrong. Though. I remember like Indonesia, one of the partners, like, like the, the, the partner like for, for Vietnam was Lin, but then the Indonesia counterpart just disappeared or something like this, I remember. And it was like a huge mess to unwind it. So you, you can get it wrong, but I mean, as long yeah. as you have, you're well capitalized to fix it and you look for the right partner, eventually those work out, I guess. So totally. um, not always perfect, but, but, you know, at that point it's about moving fast and, you know, just trying it out. So then um, I guess, you know, some of those lessons still stick for entrepreneurs who need to move fast today. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, yeah. and um, you know, finding, yeah, uh, being fast is one thing, but also finding the right person is, is super important. Yeah, I agree. So why, why do you think Zalora wasn't as successful as Lazada at the end of the day? Um, honestly, you know, Lazada, it's, it's, it's general commerce. It, uh, it completely makes sense. I mean, yeah. that's, it's just a, you know, much larger GMV potential, um, I do think, yeah. you know, fashion is interesting, but in the end, uh, you know, <laughs> there, there's this whole, you know, 98% of the, the market that, uh, that you're just yeah, not correct. really tapping into. But um, I do think that Zalora was, um, you know, at that time, you, you do see the blueprint from Zalando or even Dafiti, which had launched maybe a year or two before, yeah. and then Jabong as well. But um you know, execution, I think, was there uh, for the most part. But I, I just think that we, um, you know, we could have expanded maybe into different uh, areas quicker. But, you know, that's in the end, that's what Lazada did. And they just absolutely crushed it, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very good point. And, like, we, we took the blueprints from Zalando, Defici, Iconic, Jabong. But then, you know, when we scaled it up, we were ahead by Lazada by a few months. Uh, essentially, we transferred all the learning and knowledge for Lazada to kind of scale up and then use the same infrastructure. So it was pretty much the same beginnings for, for both of us. But I think at the end of the day, you're right. They had more category expansion. And at, a point of, at that point in time, for early e-commerce, it's really about how much, even today, it's all about assortment. And Ali still tells those stories, right? Like, how much assortment do you have? You know, if I go on Lazada now versus Shopee, mm-hmm. Shopee is just for for most general things. Shopee has more assortment, and this is kind of why they're winning. Got I think it. they're both still sub subpar e commerce experience, but <laughs> but I mean, I'm also very biased from the Amazon experience too. So some True. people say I, you know I, I have a wrong view on that, but you know, um, that, that's a good point of why why you think as Laura didn't probably grow as big. Do you do you think vertical commerce has a big story to tell in the future? Then do you think category? like fashion or single verticals can become billion dollar unicorns or do you think it's just not going to happen? You know, to be honest with you, I don't know. Um, That's a good question. What do you think? I don't know. Well, I mean, I I know for a fact, for example, like I think Zalora should have went offline much Mm. earlier. Mm. And if you look at like the guys who followed category, like the the Zalora guys who left Zalora to start Mm -hmm. their own fashion, like Pomelo, Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. Uh, they're doing extremely well. They kind of cracked the market with supply chain prices and branding mm-hmm. for Thai market and expanded outwards, but they also pushed offline. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think it's just a matter of timing. I think it's undeniable the kind of WeChat type system and super app bundling is you can avoid that and social commerce is a thing. But, you know, it's a function of how much government invests and how well people can distribute wealth. You know, how much wealth can Southeast Asia Southeast Asia take from China. And then once people at a certain parity, I think vertical commerce is a given to. 
But so mm. it's just a question of timing, I think. Okay. And then as okay. size will come, people want better brands. I, I don't know, like a lot of people disagree with me though, you know, because again, I, I might be biased because I see this from the West. I, I prefer that experience. I don't right. know if consumers will ever go that way. So, but okay. you know, that, that's my, my general thoughts. I don't know. What do you think? No, I mean, it sound or no? <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I do think it's sound. Um, you know, what I saw after I left, you know, the rocket, um, you know, constellation of, of, of businesses and, and went, um, into the, you know, other side, the, um, the advertising and marketing side is that, you know, you had this crazy growth of, of, of D to C businesses back, you know, 2012 to 14. Yeah. It was like the really early days. And, you know, in the end, theoretically, you know, I would say pound for pound, if you compare it to billion dollar business now back then, yeah, those are, those are, you know, if you adjust for, mm. uh, that yeah. they had, plenty of business that did uh you know five six seven eight nine hundred millions um and i think it's possible now today i you know i don't know i'll i'll have to yeah. get back to on that <laughs> it's a good question yeah. it's a good question yeah. well another way you can think about it is that the reason why these giant platforms alibaba's lazada's uh grab reason why they do so well because they're they have a choke point on distribution uh and why I'm kind of semi-bullish is that you could see these social influencers. Mm -hmm. Like I know this one girl in Malaysia, like she was my intern. As mm -hmm. soon as she stopped being an intern, she just started wearing stuff she bought from like Thailand and China. Mm -hmm. And man, her, her business is booming now. Right. So like, mm -hmm. so now that the distribution is on, on Instagram and if they can monetize that or, you know, what platform does she move to later to do social selling? But I, I know that it's possible to grow huge audiences. And then the question is, can she decentralize herself and have her own platform, her own portal, her own website? Mm -hmm. And, you know, can that, can that possibly be a thing? And I, I do think it's possible. It's just, you know, how can you scale it and how do you build branding around it and over time? But, you know, again, probably for another day, we could discuss this as the, you know, the ecosystem matures. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree for sure. So for for uh, I want to hear about the food panda story because you left Zalora quite you know after close to a year or more I think. Uh, then you were one of the first guys to kick off food panda, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was with Zalora for a little bit, helped um, you know in my capacity back then get it off the ground, and then food panda at the time was maybe like two months in into their launch. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, at that point, there was um, a, a, a team that was building it, I think, a four and uh, two people uh, Ollie wanted to replace, um, you know, for various reasons. And that's when he asked me and, you know, uh, my other partner uh, to, to jump in and essentially help with, uh, with the, you know, business development, with the, um, the operational aspects. Uh, because the guys that were doing it at that time, the other two that stayed behind, which who were just incredible people, uh, we're doing the development by themselves, um, all the coding, all the, uh, you know, the product, mm. et cetera, all that, all that stuff. And, um, yeah. you know, they needed two other people who had experience with operations to get it started um, a little bit more. And at that point, I think we were maybe Singapore. So I moved to Singapore for that. Um, we were in Singapore. We were in the Philippines and I think Indonesia, but I think they pulled Indonesia at that time. Um, because it wasn't mm. uh, it wasn't scalable for what they had, um, and yeah, you know, a, a lot of it again was learning that entire business model, which I had no clue about in 2011, yeah. like late 2011 or, or early 2012. Um, you know, understanding what the margins look like, understanding like how do you actually, um, you know, build um, 
you know, a, a user base for it. Um, everything from A to Z, just learning. And, and uh, I was, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, at that point in time, um, this was just nothing, you know, nobody was really doing this in Southeast Asia. I think in in Korea, for example, yeah, they had no a few players in this, but Southeast Asia, nobody. And trying to build it's like, oh, wait. Well, I think mean? it was very small, right? Because I remember Vietnam had Vietnam MMM way before Food Panda. But I think, like, if it, if it did exist, it was just a very tiny business and very niche, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. those. I mean, those guys are, were really good. Um, and, yeah, it was very niche. Not so many people doing it. And in the end, um, having to also kind of build that from the ground up was was kind of fun. It was really, really fun. Um, you know, we, we launched in Thailand, yeah. for example, and um, it – quickly became one of the fastest markets for us. We had a, we, we had a team there that was doing really crazy shit. Like, for example, you know, you set up in, at, a, at a subway and then before people order at the, at the counter, you make them order at your computer and it's just yeah. a way to get yeah, yeah, people yeah. To, to get used to it um, and show, you know, the brand that, uh, that, uh, you know, that it can work. They could bring you new people. So, you know, again, early stages, nobody really knew what they were doing and uh, we made a ton of mistakes, but in the end, I think, uh, was, we're able to really scale that, to you know, pretty decent sized business. Well, once you did all the research and testing, what was the hardest part for launching that specific model? Cause at the time, no, like you said, no one else was doing this. So it was all innovation, I guess. Well, what do you remember being the stuff that, that got you really stuck? Really stuck was making it scalable from like an operation perspective. So let's say for example, you are, um, you know, there's a company, uh, I forgot, uh, there's a restaurant in, in Ho Chi Minh City, for example. I forgot the name, but they did sandwiches and they did drinks and all this stuff. And so whenever an order came on, um, we had, you know, to get, this is before everybody had iPads or, or even phones, for yeah. example. How do you communicate these orders to the restaurant? How does the restaurant tell you if they have enough bandwidth or ingredients or whatever to get it done? How do they relay that information back to you all while the person's still logged in and, and making that order? So, you know, one of the biggest problems that we were trying to solve essentially was building a um, a product that can do this two-way communication back and forth. We eventually settled on uh, one of these, like uh, you know, these um, these little machines that we bought from China that uh, we were able to build um, a, a programming language in there, so that once you put an order in foodpanda.com or whatever, and it sends a, the order over to the local restaurant, you know, they can press a button one, two, three, yes, no. Um, and then the time it's going to take for it, for it to get there. And that was just the hardest part to actually build because you had to source this from a different market. You had to actually build it. You had to, you know, train the folks you had to distribute it to all the hundreds of restaurants. And again, mind you, this was in early 2012. Um, yeah. And once that actually, I think, got put into place, it, it really helped, you know, um, certain restaurants that had a bottleneck to really scale because you didn't have to then jump on the phone with yeah. like 500 customer service agents. You know what I mean? Yeah. Essentially, there's a big theme in what we're talking about is that because Rocket was first, in theory, we had our first mover advantage, but because we had to spend so much money to build the infrastructure, a lot of pot, a lot of competitors later on benefited from being a second advantage mover, right? So they just took advantage of what we did. They could spend less and then they could just probably either raise more money to outcompete on price or, um, so I guess, you know, one, one theme is that, you know, there was, there was one downside where as, as things got more mature, Rocket did suffer because they, 
did everything the hard way and and everyone else benefited from the hard work, I guess, in a sense. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, there are um, plenty of cases of that. And, and, you know, the smaller guys that were able to really, you know, it forces you to be, you know, everyone always, always says this, but it forces you to be more creative and to do things um, a little bit differently. Um, but, uh, you know, it's different ways of getting there. And I think for, you know, for the businesses that we competed against, um, there were plenty that just, you know, weren't able to to make it work. And sometimes you just yeah. need that that cushion there to, to make it happen. Yeah. So Delivery Hero uh, IPO'd, I think, in 2017 in Germany, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, do you think you should have stayed longer to do the food IPO <laughs> and, and, and keep managing that? Because I looked at the numbers, right? And the, the Q1 results for 2021, and they did over a billion in revenue like 5 billion in GMV or something like something crazy. And the biggest, the biggest chunk of that of delivery hero is Asia, you know, something like 600 million, I think. Um, do you wish you kind of stayed on longer to, to kind of lead this and grow it? Uh, regrets? No regrets. Um, you okay. know, a lot of, you know, a lot of that number probably from delivery Hero is also just from, you know, the businesses that they have in Korea, they own the two largest uh, yeah. players in Korea. And That's they're, true. Just, yeah. they're just insanely huge. Um, like, I've it, never, yeah. I've never seen no, like DAUs and orders like this ever for, for, for food. It's ridiculous. Um, but you know, yeah. in for Southeast Asia, no, no regrets. I think um, I learned everything that I could. I, I met the people that I need to meet. And uh, in the end, I didn't yeah. love the, uh, the business in the vertical. Um, yeah. Who knows, but n- none whatsoever. Do do you have any predictions for how food's going to shape up? You are an early builder of the ecosystem. You have an understanding of how the business works. Mm-hmm. It, it has evolved to a degree with this kind of platformization of Grab and Gojek. However, honestly, the model's not too far. Not, I mean, you educated all the merchants. They just went and acquired the same merchant, same model that Food Panda yeah. did. Uh, Food Panda is looking more at gorillas, right? They're owning the corner store kind of model. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grab is trying to push just into more categories and. You know, monetize payments with food as well mm-hmm. as their main driver for for growth. Yeah. What did you have any predictions or any ideas or clear insights? Do you think and how this food industry shapes out? I don't. I think it will just depend on each market um, where there's a hole that needs to be filled. I think um, there's so many you know little uh, yeah. There's some, there's just a, a different nuance for each market and. I don't actually. And that's what's the most okay. interesting part, seeing what's going to unfold. Like yeah. you just have no yeah. idea and, and things will just come out of nowhere and surprise you. Just like, whoa. So you, you think it's far from done. You know, the, I think the story is not closed. It's, it's not no. going to be one player takes all and there's more surprises to come essentially. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's far from done. Um, yeah. And there, there's going to be, I mean, there's still so much friction. There's still so much, all, all, as much yeah. as things have really made life so much better and easier for everyone, yeah. especially now during the past, you know, 12 to 15 months, there's so much more that can be done. And I think it, yeah. things will just get uh, much, much better. Uh, you know, you, you might have some interesting insights from your end, being in North Asia and having experience there. Uh, I, I was doing another podcast format where we talk with more friends on, on recent trending topics. And one interesting thing that we discussed coming out of this whole f- food-driven kind of platform idea is that it's creating a whole class of labor that's not really skilled labor. And hmm. it doesn't have really have a positive net benefit effect for society. And it has more capital, like Grab is now going to be 10 billion capitalized after their SPAC, right? And this is just going to further fuel the machine. What, what do you think about 
the net effect on society and especially more developed markets like Korea that you're seeing where it's so big. Do you think this is net good for society, bad for society? How should it, how should they kind of approach it? Should they, you know, cut more margin and then pay these guys more properly or, you know, how does it work out? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think in the end, obviously people should, um, you know, the folks that are, you know, at every part of the supply chain from, you know, the people that actually are, are running the venture to people who make the, the last, uh, the delivery, um, are, are incredibly important parts of it. I think everyone, you know, I think, you know, a lot of this stuff is with labor policy and, and, um, you know, employment, et cetera. I, net net, I think it's a, a, a huge, huge plus for every market that it's, you know, it's, Ronin, the yeah. ones that I can speak about um, that I've, you know, in, in, in the States or, or in Korea, et cetera. Um, I do think, of course, there are probably ways to make it a little bit more um, equitable and fair for everybody involved. Um, you know, things, you know, tend to, you know, work out um, towards the, um, um, towards the average and, you know, down the line. And I think you're starting to see that um, in, some you know ventures some markets where you know compensation is is determined um in a way that becomes more fair for everyone that's uh, a part of it um net net it's been incredibly useful for a lot of people especially who, who need right. to fill in some you know uh, part-time jobs yeah. exactly but um i do understand the other side of the um the policy, uh, you know, argument where it's like, maybe you're, you're creating perpetual, uh, people that, you know, will never have full-time jobs or full-time benefits, et cetera. Yeah. And obviously that's, that's a huge, you know, that could be a huge red flag. So I think net net, you know, things will work towards the center in the, in the right way. Um, but I think for the most part, it's been such an incredible plus for everybody. Yeah. I mean, I think I kind of agree. So there's two points from that. Net-net, right? I think you're right. Technology has unlocked a huge amount of consumer wealth, like just things that you couldn't get before. Now you're getting yeah. it. Um, and you're right. There are some markets who are moving more towards an equitable distribution. Mm -hmm. But that begs the question, especially for markets in Asia, mm -hmm. you know, at a given take rate uh, in a certain basket size, you know, assuming that, you know, the average order value doesn't get bigger. Does that destroy the economics if you try to be more equitable? Maybe it works in other markets, you know, like in, in, in America. Um, or, you know, does, does the model not hold up if you try to make it more equitable at this point, do you think? Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, the you know, depending on the unit economics of a per particular market, um, in the end, if it doesn't hold up, then that business probably won't last. Um, and, you know, and, and I think that's also a, a sign of, you know, I... I it's just, it's also a sign of whether or not it's a viable business or not. You know, I, I don't know. I come from yeah. a very yeah. different perspective maybe than others, but, um, you know, within sort of the, the regulatory environment, um, as long as you can fall within that and you can make things work, you know, it should work out. Yeah. Or, or the valuation just corrects, right. To a certain natural market size. And then, exactly. then you get a, a business yeah. at, at yeah. a certain much smaller than what they're probably expecting, but that's, that's to be determined, I guess. Um, yeah. Do you think rocket internet's rocket? Do you think rocket internet itself is still relevant today? Not, not its portfolio companies, but rocket itself. You know, I haven't really heard. I haven't really I haven't kept up, uh, to be honest. Um, yeah. Probably not. I think what was the, you know, what was the really, um, 
the value proposition of, of growing things uh, globally quickly um, is, is not uh, so much an advantage anymore. I think there are incredible entrepreneurs and, and builders around the world that could do it much faster than what you would have at a rocket. Um, most likely that's probably the scenario. Um, but I haven't kept up and, and, um, my feeling is that it's probably not, I think they're moving towards more of an investor business model from what I can see online, yeah. online at least. And, um, that's amazing that they, that they can invest uh, money into founders that can build these things, um, locally with the local yeah. talent. And I think that's probably the better way to go at this point. So do you think uh, a venture builder, venture studio model is viable today? Would, would you start something like this or would you think it would never work out? I don't think it would work out necessarily um, because there are so many resources and people that um, to get it done that, you you know, if it's something like, a, like an incubator, maybe that can help give you best practices, um, can introduce you to investors, can give you... Um, different assets that you need, but like a venture builder, I don't know. I, I can't think of many that are actually operating successful. now at scale that are successful. I think most of them are yeah. incubators or like Y Combinator type yeah. deals that, that build things. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Do you know of any, can you think of any? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a few in the U S I, I don't yeah. know the names off the top of my head, but I've okay. heard them mentioned a few times in podcasts, but okay. I think it's a, it's, it's a very specific model where it needs to be founder led something like you need an Ollie somewhere or someone who's kind of done it before. And mm-hmm. um, obviously they're not gonna be as world famous because I think it's just something harder to execute. You know, yeah. you need certain lanes where you're building secrets that no one knows about, or there was an arbitrage opportunity like rocket did and they kind of closed the gap already. So yeah, that's a very um, good point. I, it, it's, I mean, it's probably viable, but it's just harder. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's just it's a different game. Completely um, so, so do you? Do you how, how are you feeling now? You, do you want to talk about post rocket? Do you have time or? Yeah, I've got a little bit of time. Sure, absolutely. Okay, so let's absolutely. let's talk about. I mean, you had a really awesome, as we heard, great rocket career. Uh, probably many people would envy this kind of you know traction in history and learnings that you got from rocket. Uh, then you decided, uh, you know, a, a path different you know did you ever consider building after rocket or what happened after food panda you know why why did you jump into another company that was already established and growing yeah uh, what were your thoughts at the time when you left yeah you know i uh was you know i was always thinking of something to 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 build on my own but i could never find sort of something that, that really really got me super excited um you know, when I left uh, in in early to the or mid two thousand thirteen to join, um, it was also another German company called AppLift. It was part of the the Hitfox group of businesses, which was focused around gaming and advertising and mobile. Um, I had seen a you know obviously from the times of Rocket how important that was going to be. We had just started, you know, a, you know apps, yeah. you know, for Zalora and Foodpan and Lazada, etc. Um, and I was super intrigued about how that would work and and with what this company offered to me was the ability to be sort of in the middle of a lot of what was going on, you know, seeing a lot of different advertisers that were doing user acquisition, understanding how they built it, looking at the supply side um, of publishers and how they monetized. Um, and so I jumped at the opportunity. I knew some of these guys through um, 
you know, my network that could vouch for what they were doing and, uh, you know, flew and met them, you know, for a night, you know, uh, in, in Singapore and then flew back and then figured out that something I wanted to do. Um, it was a really wild time, you know, from mobile, especially back then from, I would yeah. say anywhere from 2011 to 2017, it was really the wild west. Like nobody, this is before yeah. Facebook did any kind of, um, advertising on their side. There was, um, you know, the products that were really out there were just, you know, some games this is when Candy Crush was first getting popular. Um, and so yeah. it tells you a little bit about where the ecosystem was and, um, really got onto, you know, this, uh, you know, this car that was, you know, starting to ramp up and, uh, gotta say it was, it was one of the best things that, you know, decisions I've ever made. Yeah. I mean, so essentially, can you explain briefly what was the main product service that AppLift was serving? What, what exactly is it? So Apple back then um, was uh, essentially doing mobile user acquisition, helping advertisers to find their users on a, you know on uh, on mobile to help download their apps. Um, that time, you know, it was really just a sales game, and it was a, a game yeah. of uh, getting out to you know uh, to meet everybody that you could. And um, because of the way the ecosystem worked at that time. There was just huge growth. Some of the biggest companies were were, were doing this that mm. nobody's really heard of. Um, you had a lot of affiliation guys doing affiliate stuff. You had a lot of DSP starting to grow. Um, you had a lot. Of, you know, this is when um, you know you had stuff like offer walls. You had stuff with like incentivized, rewarded downloads. Um, so it was really just kind of a, a really nascent um, industry. Things were nobody really knew where their place was um, in the ecosystem. And that was the best part of it because you could really yeah. drive forward your, um, you know, your ambitions and, and figure out what you need to build quickly um, and yeah. to, to grow. Yeah. So essentially if like uh, I'm building a company, I want to advertise, I would come find you and you would help me get users to my app or my mobile yes. platform essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and at, the, at the other spectrum, you have all, the inventory as well, or did you have to work with inventory players for me to reach those kind of people eyeballs that you know for me to you know to push my ads to, or how did that work? Exactly. So we we were a demand side player. Um, you would need to find the supply, the publishers that had the traffic that you needed, and um, our yeah. job was to 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 bid and buy some of these this this traffic um, that worked, yeah. and it it was you know the traffic that you might have. And Korea, for example, would come from publishers that are based in China or based in the U.S. And, mm. you know, some of it came, you know, most of it obviously came from Korea, but um, it was really a global sort of play there. And, uh, you know, the advantage was having a footprint in a lot of this, these different markets where you had access to yeah. publishers with traffic in certain, you know, geos that maybe the local players didn't have access to. So, for example, when, you know, Candy Crush first launched in Korea. We were the ones to bring it in through our um, mm. through our network in in uh, in Germany. They were working very closely with the the King uh, folks out of the UK, yeah. um, and that was something that nobody really had access to, and that really helped us. So, yeah. you know, it was another global play. Um, I learned a ton from that. I learned, you know, that there's, there was a lot of smoke in the industry, obviously smoke and mirrors, yeah. um, but it was a really crazy time. Um, and it lasted, I would say, a good that 
that really euphoric time lasted, I would say, a good five, six, seven years. Yeah. And then essentially the from the time you joined was the wild, wild west or mm-hmm. east or whatever. Mm-hmm. It consolidated, right? Or how does the landscape look today in terms of, you know, this space? Obviously, Facebook owns a huge chunk of, you know, these days when you think about user acquisition, I'm going to Facebook, we'll say Instagram as well, TikTok. Um, how, how does AppLift kind of fit into this ecosystem today to survive? So AppLift actually got bought by a German uh, conglomerate in 2019. They got folded in. Um, so the ecosystem these days is, is very different, obviously, from back then. So now Facebook and Google, Snap and TikTok, they, you know, they take yeah. 80%, 85%, 90% of user acquisition budgets for the most part. Yeah. And you know, if you're a startup, you're most likely just going to spend on Facebook because it's the easiest yeah. to get off the ground. and you know, uh, you know, target and, and, and set your cadences, et cetera. Um, so it's different. And then programmatic is, is now, um, you know, much larger portion of the business from back then in mobile, you know, programmatic really didn't exist back then. Um, and then everything else that, um, that, you know, in, in affiliation or ad networks, et cetera, they're still big, um, but, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's a lot harder to, to make your mark there and it's a lot harder to to drive the the businesses that you know that you need essentially so where, where does the future lead to are these guys going to have a an oligopoly oligopoly stranglehold on on the advertising industry or is there a way that smaller guys can also get their you know their products and media assets out to to you know a bigger audience without them or what do you think? That's a good question. I think you know, especially with what Apple is doing with their um, their privacy updates, this um, this changes the landscape quite a bit. You know, especially if, you know when you look at bigger players, um, but especially if you're an entrepreneur, you're budding entrepreneur, um, it's a lot harder yeah. to do user acquisition now because of you know ATT Apple's privacy um, initiative yeah. to to use that, and you'll start to see a lot more consolidation in the mobile space where you know, gaming companies or even e-commerce players are going to start to gobble up um, smaller players in order to have that first party advantage to understand, mm. uh, keep all your users within one ecosystem. Um, and then you just need some infra to be able to do cross promotion, to take one DAU, yeah. move it somewhere else um, to find users XYZ. So Zynga is obviously doing this. They, they bought ton yeah. of game studios and they're able to rotate them mm-hmm. through with, with sort of the ad tech um, infra that they need. You'll start to see this with, uh, obviously Facebook does this the best. You know, they're probably the, the ones that are able to really do this yeah, um, well. And, you yeah. know, but even smaller, um, you know, smaller players will start to do this too. And I think um, it's a real, it's a real consolidation time in mobile and you're going to start to see this uh, accelerate further. Did you know that you're going to spend such a long time at AppLift? Because this was six years and, and plus, right? Uh, and before that, you know, the longest you spent was about three years. So what were your I, thoughts? I didn't. Um, and uh, I really, it, it, it flew by so quickly. I, I did not know there was yeah. so much more to learn because, you know, it's jumping from market to market, building markets. I never built anything in Japan and, you know, I was lucky enough to work with a team, for example, that, yeah. uh, that built out in Japan or the industry was changing so fast. You know, you need to become a programmatic player and build your own DSP and have this own tech stack here. Um, yeah. And so there was like a new challenge every 18 months and that was very yeah. challenging for me. Um, 
didn't know. And, uh, you know, in the end, I'm still in the space theoretically. Yeah. And uh, it's yeah. something that I, I, I really enjoy being a part of. Any idea on any numbers you could share from when you joined and how big it grew to by the time it got acquired by MIG? MGI? Yeah. 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 So, you know, with, with AppLift, uh, when I joined, I think we were doing maybe 30 million revenue per year. Um, and that yeah. was like, you know, a year, a year after they launched, you know, margins in, in these businesses are, are quite huge. Now, with with ad tech, uh, with mobile ad tech specifically, there are certain like thresholds that are really hard to get over. So it's really hard to get over twenty. Then it's really hard to get mm. over fifty million, you know, per year, mm. uh, and then it's yeah. really hard to get over a hundred. And companies that can go over a hundred million per year are very far and few between. Uh, I yeah. think we were doing a hundred million run rate when, uh, well, you know, yes. at the peak. Um, yeah, you know, and the margins are quite sexy too. It's very scalable, but. Um, it's yeah. so competitive that, you know, from from year to year, you know, something can happen when you have, for example, Apple's, uh, you know, most recent changes with um, privacy changes of 14.5 that Ooh, a lot. could throw, yeah, 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 it just threw a monkey yeah. wrench into a lot of different, you know, businesses uh, playbook, the way they deliver their whole tech stack um, and yeah. uh, being so reliant on, on that can really change things. So you know, companies are resilient that are, are obviously on top and, and, um, you know, they'll always find ways to, to grow even bigger, but, um, you know, these little things can, can have really, really huge effects later down the line. Well, what are the av average industry margins for, for this kind of business model? So if you're, you know, if you're a programmatic player, um, you know, like a DSP, most likely you're getting around 15 to 30% margin depends on how well you can actually buy. Um, it could yeah. be higher, um, but I don't think that much higher. And if you are, okay. um, you know, if you're doing something that's um, a little bit special, obviously the margins could be really fat, much fatter. Um, yeah. But I don't know these days. I mean, the whole point of programmatic is that it makes it a lot more efficient for advertisers to, to buy efficiently. Yeah. And so in the end, things will, will average out uh, a little bit downward. So what, what's, what's the magic sauce to go from 30 million to hundred million? Why were you guys <laughs> so successful? Uh, I mean, in the end it's uh, you know, it was a product um, and the people that were doing so it's all sales, you know, in the end. So you need a good yeah. product. I mean, first and foremost, but um, I'm still a firm believer in anything that it's, it's all about sales mm -hmm. and you need to get out. And uh, yeah. even if you're a product first business or product um, heavy company in the end, it's, it's all sales. And we had a great founding team that uh, was able to leverage their network and find the right advertising mm -hmm. partners to work with us. Um, you know, it was also just uh, maybe luck and maybe a little bit of hard work, you know, finding the, the, yeah. the markets that we should go into. And, you know, uh, at that point, you know, Southeast Asia was really hot and it was a market that we mm. put money into. And, you know, then you have markets like, uh, you know, Japan, China, and Korea, which are just global powerhouses for mobile. Um, and at that time, uh, you had a lot of, um, you had a lot of, uh, you know, mobile advertisers that had global ambitions to, to do stuff. And, you just to take advantage of that. So it, a lot of things lined up the right way. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point because I never really thought about it, but 
each of these different regions probably have different specific moats because when you advertise it's in different languages and different distribution channels and different players, right? So it does allow more room to be fragmented. And if you can get over the hump of entry, then you can you know, kind of carve out a space where it could be profitable and a, a very, probably a fairly big niche, which I guess you guys found out. Um, so by, by the time MIG acquired you guys, uh, were you able to get any equity in this? Did you get a nice little <laughs> nest from this or any uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure. A little bit. Say, I, I was <laughs> happy. You don't have to say the number, but. Yeah, I mean, I was a little, I, you know, I, I was I was happy with the way that okay. uh, that we left. Yeah, yeah, let's put it that way. I put it this way. Do, is it enough to say you have FU money or? <laughs> no way. No, no. I'll never have that money. <laughs> Still stuff to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. FU money, I think, is, uh, I don't know. I feel like that's a, that, that's a, a broad range on that too, though. There's I, a broad uh, range because for for some people it's a few million, for some people it's like ten million, for some people it's higher, right? So it really depends. It worked out, and I think in the end, I, I don't think I would ever be in the the mentality where I would say I have any money. No, it's not. Uh, yeah, it's not really my style. Uh, you're just too polite. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> no. So what was the acquisition like? What you know, if we're gonna, if someone wants to go into an acquisition deal like this, where your company's hundred million dollars in a competitive space is a good deal. It's a good inflection point. What should people know about? What should they avoid? What should they do in advance? You know, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't know so much about, you know, the intricacies of, of the transaction. Um, you know, I would just say, you know, the only thing I could really speak with, the only thing I could speak about that with any insight that might make sense is just timing is just really hard to do. And, um, yeah. you know, sometimes, you know, the top of the market was probably in 2017, you know, and, um, mm. you know, uh, but nobody knew back then, right. Nobody knows when it is. Um, yeah, correct. But everything else, I, I, I can't say I have enough insight to really, to really give anybody any kind of understanding that might make sense. You know what I mean? Maybe for maybe if you're someone in your role, because you were leading at the top level, right? For your for your division and for what you were responsible for, which was significant, right? Mm-hmm. Driving growth and revenue. Um, I don't know how how did you handle it? Or was it just a very straightforward, just follow the process kind of thing? So I think it was straightforward. I was not really driving the transaction at all. Actually, um, I was mainly focused yeah. just on building. Um, but from what Correct. I understand, you know, a lot of it is. Um, it's still a lot of sales involved to, to sell any kind of company. And, uh, you know, yeah. I think in the end that will never change. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess what's more important then is if someone's in your role, the question is what do you do? You should be thinking about what you do next. Right. So <laughs> did you want to go back to building a company then, or, you know, or did you know that, you know, Entrevision approached you or how, or how like what happened next after this acquisition? Yeah, so I um, I took time off for quite some time actually, trying to figure out the next move. I was actually working on a few small projects before that I was excited about it before COVID um, COVID hit, and I you know had to give mm-hmm. up on those. Um, and uh, you know, trying to figure out what was the next play, and that I was introduced to you know my current company through again same same deal through the networks that I I had built before old coworkers had, you know, knew the, the guys are running the visual, the digital division for Entrevision. And um, yeah, you know, I got in touch. Uh, 
I had known about what, you know, what they do. And, you know, through some of the businesses that we competed against, um, hopped on a call with uh, the guys running the, the business and one of the founders of the portfolio companies that um, that's doing really well. And just knew instantly these guys are not your typical, you know, corporate guys. These guys, it's more of like mm. a startup within a corporate. I know it sounds like bullshit, um, but <laughs> really. There's also, they're, they're also publicly listed too. So that's very interesting. The co- yes, the parent company is publicly listed. And then, uh, but the digital division that I work with, um, okay. you know, still founder driven, you know, from one of the product uh, portfolio companies that they acquired and, no, it's the same. It's the same hustle. It's it's you know a lot of what I had seen before. You know, really getting out there, recruiting is like you know the number one priority always, um, and always, always um, doing sales. Even you know the founder CEO is also hugely involved in the sales process and doing the product. Yeah. Some things never change, um, and uh, you know there are some disadvantages and advantages. Disadvantage when you're part of a bigger company, there's a lot more reporting requirements. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that you need to do. Uh, but one of the advantages is that you know you have um, you have some you know space to work within, and you don't need to really worry about so much like the run rate. I would say as nearly as much as you would had you yeah. know been a startup that's uh, that's not funded um, as much. So. True. Pros and cons, and um, but in the end, it's just like any of the other startups I've worked with. It's like you got to work fast, yeah. you got to work quickly, you got to find the right people, um, and it's a super cutthroat environment still um, and market. And if you're not able to iterate and make it work, you're not going to win. In the end, you're not going to survive. So, what was their uh, main pitch to you? What was what was your pitch to them? <laughs> My main pitch to them was, um, you know, I'm sort of a steady hand when it comes to this. I, you know, I've worked with a lot of yeah. companies are able to, to build quickly. Um, and I knew the ins and outs of this particular industry very well, having been in it for, you know, yeah. seven plus years. Um, their pitch to me, I really, really liked the guys that were leading it. Um, they are, you know, you know, one of them in particular is, a, is sort of a product that, you know, understands a product in a level of detail that is just amazing. Um, and in the end, um, they have, you know, the product that they had at that time was something I knew that could really grow into something that could be, you know, huge scale at that time, still small. We're still growing. We're at that uh, period of point where I think we're going to hit inflection point. And I want to be a part of that. And, um, you know, in the end, the team is also yeah. equally important. Can can you roughly say uh, bigger or smaller when AppLift exited or on that path or where where is it roughly? It's smaller. It's definitely smaller, uh, smaller but it's on okay. the path to getting bigger. Okay, so so you know um, this game then? I know the game. I know the blueprint. Um, yeah, you know I've I've been through it, and I hope you know yeah. some of the experience, especially in Asia, uh, will help because we don't have a footprint here, and that's why I'm in Korea at the moment okay. to to help build this. I and um, it's it's in such an incredibly huge part of this business that um, I'm hoping that we'll, we'll start to see some um, the fruits of my labor here, our labor. Yeah. And essentially what you're saying is you saw something better in the product that's helped connect. Cause like you said, it comes down to, if you have a product, of course, that's one thing, but in this case, you probably need a better product given how competitive the market is. Then it's just pushing that better product through what your, your main super skill is, which is, you know, this distribution and sales. Um, what, what's special about this product versus what you were doing before? Uh, what's special about it? Well, I would say that the, um, the way that the, 
actual buying and the evaluation of all the inventory. So it's, you know, every it's, you know, it's, it's, it's real time um, bidding of an impression, right? So every time you see an impression yeah. on your phone, you know, exchanges bid it out to hundreds of players to figure out who wants to bid on it. Right. So evaluating yeah. uh, with or without context, especially without, you know, any kind of signal because of ATT, because of Apple's privacy policy, understanding from a contextual perspective, does it make sense to buy this impression or bid on it at least? Um, that is, I would say, the advantage of understanding with all the knowledge that you have from from buying billions of impressions before, does this make sense at this time to buy this now? And that takes a tremendous yeah. amount of, you know, you, I, I, I don't want to get too much in details, but basically, is your algorithm, is your machine learning, is it that much better than okay. yours? Yeah. And okay. So it's, it's so very tech heavy. Yeah. And you can't bullshit that. That's just, yeah, are you good or not? It's just and better performance end of the day. Better performance. And how can you get there? Um, yeah. And there's also a really good footprint for how you want to grow in the future. You know, there's, there's so much that's going to happen going forward. I think connected TV is, is an area that's, you know, for the past few years has been already huge and it probably becomes a much bigger part of what advertisers need in, in order to yeah. acquire an audience. Um, and you're going to have to, you know, regardless of which device you're on, um, you know, any way that you can reach somebody is, is going to be equally important. So it sounds like you're highly focused on the digital, um, I guess, digital marketing side for Entrevision as a division. Right. And then is there any plans to further integrate the unique network that Entrevision has? Because they have, probably a unique set of media that's uh, traditional from TV shows and radio. Do they have plans to digitize that, put it online, and then you could plug in your algorithm on the, the, the marketing side to their actual media assets. And then you have a much more powerful kind of system where you have a big distribution network on one hand from the parent company, then you have the tech to run advertising through it. And then you kind of have this very nice little big moat you're building. Is, is that what the plan is or, or what's going on with that? I mean, I think that's... Um... It's absolutely one part of the growth plan is to, you know, you have a, you have an audience that's one of the biggest and fastest growing audiences in, in the U S and North America and the Americas for sure. Yeah. Um, and to reach them traditionally with, with this company, it's been more the linear, you know, uh, it's, yeah. it's been on the Typical linear. Advertising. Uh, exactly. Um, and so once you build this, this product that can, you know, what our ambition is to really become a programmatic, a uh, product that can service, you know, everyone around the world, but especially with this audience already pre-built in um, and that's yeah. been growing. Um, it, it's just like a no brainer, you know, you put, you yeah. put these two together and it grows, but you know, with what we're trying to do on the digital side internationally, it's also, you know, because of the way that it's um, agnostic to regions specifically, it's a tool. It's a, it's a software that anybody can use to, to buy and, you know, in, in, yeah, in more, Singapore more access, or yeah. exactly or Russia, um, yeah. you know, that's, I think, a, a bigger play. Okay, interesting. So you're, you're yeah. betting more on the the global distribution. But, you know, like, but like you said, it's also a very competitive market and it's hard to say what will happen. So it seems that you must have something really good in the, in the pipeline. Otherwise, for you to be this confident after working <laughs> seven years in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the pipeline is, 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 it looks good. But, um, you know, I, I, I think we have a very good shot um, at really building something um, huge. But, you know, in the end, 
it's it's a lot of pieces that need to fit together and um competitions there are incredible competition there's an incredible amount of competition on the market and people every day are, are doing things really interesting um and there's a lot of consolidation yeah. but you know in the end i think it's it's not just having the best products it's also having the best sales and distribution i think that's where where you can win so then i guess for the last question mm-hmm. if you had never done AppLift or ontravision mm-hmm. what problem would you want to be solving as a founder today or what would you find compelling enough to spend the rest of your life solving or building oh um i don't know about so for me i think the the topic of of, of climate is something that mm-hmm. i've been interested in recently um just as a side you know hobby reading into it um i don't have nearly any kind of technical knowledge or ability, but it would be something that I'd want to be a part of solving and, and helping yeah. in whatever way it could be. But um, be something around that. I think it's really an important, especially, uh, you know, as, as you know, there's a lot more information that, that makes it very clear, you know, that uh, the, their inputs and their outputs and it, there's just too many inputs happening right now um, for what we need yeah. and probably would be around that. And I think it's, um, it, com- it combines a lot of really interesting things and, and, you know, nobody solves this soon. Then we're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll give you one edge that you have, you know, from launching so many businesses to scaling them to running profitable, successful divisions, selling companies. Uh, one, one way you could do it is, you know, if you have some extra savings you could always invest in entrepreneurs in the space and then get the information flow from there learn more keep investing in the space and maybe something will turn out from there hopefully yeah definitely exactly and i think that's um there's a incredible amount of um hopefully capital that's going in into investing in these founders and hey i i think that will be you know, I think that's going to be a huge part of what actually changes like these smaller players that are actually going to drive a lot of this and um, any way that could be part of it. I'd love to be great. Uh, so any final words, anything you want to plug or final comments? No, nothing, nothing to plug, but uh, you know, I, 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 you know, really enjoyed my time here. I think um, it's really cool to hear stories from, from everybody around the region at different places and, um, so I'm glad that, you know, hopefully somebody might find some value in this and, uh, it was always good chatting with you, man. Okay. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and, uh, we'll catch up soon again. Okay. See you, man. Hey listeners. Thanks for listening to Steven's episode. If you enjoyed the content or learned something new, please share this with your friends and family who would benefit and give us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. So what did we learn today? With more and more money and talent going into startups, entrepreneurship, and innovation, Everything that Rocket Internet has done in the past has a lot of relevance today. Many facets and variables have shifted and changed, but some have stayed the same. It's very clear that if you're looking for fast growth, it's hard to avoid the user acquisition paradigm, and that cost has risen significantly. So make sure your unit economics are solid, or you have a way to ensure lifetime value expansion is viable down the road. At the end of the day, the small entrepreneurs will be clashing with the big platform players who keep raising billions of dollars. Perhaps with all of this in mind, we will see a new renaissance of high quality products, real product market fit, pushes for virality due to good quality. I would like to think that the macro picture is at a saturation point that makes it hard to financially engineer growth and instead forces innovators to take things to a new level. Whether it be in entrepreneurship, ad tech, or any industry, I hope that's where we're heading. EOA out.